You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, it's good to be back after a brief trip to warmer places with the family. We went down to Florida for a few days, and for the, the younger parents, I can tell you that as your children get older, those those trips down to the beach become more and more fun. They actually become easier and easier. The travel to the beach, maybe not so much, but the being at the beach definitely is much easier. We had a great time. But with all that's enjoyable about the beach, uh, there's nowhere that I would rather be right now than standing here with you and having our Bibles open. So let me encourage you to open your copy of God's Word to our text for this morning. It's just one verse. It's Amos chapter 1, verse 1. This is an exciting day for us as we have completed that brief sermon series, short and stout through the five shortest books of the Bible. And now we have chosen as pastors to come next to one of the minor prophets named Amos. And so here we are starting a new sermon series called Gripped by God. The book of Amos is a book about a man by a man who was gripped by God to people who needed the grip of God. And so we look forward to uh, beginning this series together this morning. You know, in our church, we take preaching very seriously. We, we don't always get it right. We don't always do it well, but we certainly take it seriously just as we do in every way and opportunity that we have to handle the Word of God. Why is that? Uh, I think there are two main reasons why we take preaching in the Bible so seriously. Number one is because we believe by taking the Bible seriously, we can magnify the glory of God in our church and in our world. But the second reason, too, is that we can, by taking the Word of God seriously in our lives and in our church, maximize our happiness in Him, and by being increasingly happy in Christ, we can glorify Him all the more. But bringing about these two important ends requires, as we feel as pastors every week, I hope that you feel it on your side of things every week, requires real work. It requires real effort, real intentionality. And that intentionality involves us eating a well-rounded diet from the Bible. And so that's why we, we try to spend time as a church, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, of course, the New Testament is, is, is very much more familiar to us. It may be, if we use the analogy of, of diet still, it may feel a little tastier to us, like a, a soft, juicy steak. It's, it's a little more familiar to us. It, it may feel like it's easier to take away the enjoyment and the truth into our lives. And then when we come to the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament Sometimes we have a little different experience, don't we? There are certain parts of the Old Testament that feel a little bit like the New Testament in that way. Psalms and, and Proverbs, maybe some of the more well-known passages or books of the Bible. But then when we start to get into the weeds a little bit of the minor prophets, it can seem like the Old Testament is not so much like a soft, juicy steak, but maybe a little more like raw broccoli or Brussels spouts. Those are the two things that come to mind for me. You may have your own. They are highly nutritious, but they're just not as familiar to us. They're not as um, easy to get down. It takes work. The problem, though, remember, as we come to the Old Testament yet again, is not in the sprouts. The problem is actually in us. And this experience really remains for us. We, we have to remember as we come to the book of Amos, as we spend this time digging into the truth of the Old Testament, we have to remember, you have to remember why we are eating this. You have to remember those two big reasons why we would go back and spend what will be for us about five months in the book of Amos. That's 23 sermons together here. We want to magnify the glory of God, and we want to maximize our happiness in Christ. We come to know God in this way by knowing his word. And we come to know his word by hearing him 
in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. And we come to know the Old Testament and the New Testament by reading the books of each and doing so carefully. So that's, that's where we're going yet again to this book of Amos, a careful time together, gleaning, digging, craving the truth that God has placed here for us in the book of Amos. Again, we'll finish uh, around the end of October, so you can keep track of sort of where we are and, and how many sermons we have left here as we want to mine these important truths. Well, we begin this morning with just one verse, the very first verse of Amos chapter 1. You may hear that, uh, like I do sometimes, and wonder what in the world does God have for us in just one verse at the very beginning of a minor prophet. Well, as we'll see this morning, he has quite a bit. He has loaded his word in every verse, in every word, in every chapter, in every book, in every part of his word, loaded it with truth for our lives. And that is our prayer for this morning, that God would, would unpack his truth in our hearts, even as we begin with this one verse at the very beginning of the book of Amos. May God grip our hearts May he grip our souls and our minds, and may he give us these two great objectives that we are seeking as we begin a new adventure this morning. We begin here at the very beginning of verse 1, and I just want to show you three truths and, and use this time together as a, a kind of introduction to the book of Amos. But it's, it's not an introduction like you may think of. We're not just trying to get down the facts and the history and the details and who is this and where is this. All of that is very important. But we want to begin right from the start by mining truth for our own hearts as we move into this book. So you'll see some basic things, but at the same time, we are, as always, taking the Word of God seriously in how we might apply it to our hearts. Now, this is what I want you to see first, the first of three truths to introduce us to Amos. First is simply this. Who is Amos? Amos is a prophet. You see this in the very beginning of verse 1, right off the bat, just these first few words, you read the words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders of Tekoa. Now, we don't know very much about Amos other than what we can glean here. The word that's used to describe him is translated sheep herder, probably in your translation of the Bible. Now, it's not the word shepherd, but it's very similar. It's, it's talking about someone who is responsible for, for tending or breeding livestock. And also, as we see a little bit later in the book, he also spent quite a bit of his time growing figs. But that's not the most important thing about Amos. That's just where he began. That's just his daily life. What we want to know more about him is who is Amos? What is he doing? Why is God using him? What is God using him for? Well, the most important thing we can see this morning about Amos is what we had just said, that Amos was a prophet. He was a prophet. Now, what exactly is a prophet? If we put it simply, a prophet is someone who, who speaks a message from God. That's why it says in the very beginning, the words of Amos. It's the, it's the word dabar, which means word. Its typical use, as you find it, as you read through the Bible and the Old Testament, is to refer to the word of the Lord. So while these are the words of Amos, they are not words that originated with him. They're words that God gave him as a prophet. And as we're going to see in just a moment, these words of Amos are the very words of God divinely supernaturally revealed to him. We are reading in this book, as we do throughout the scriptures, all 66 books, the words of God. Now, if you're like me, when you hear that, when you hear this brief introduction and you think of Amos as a prophet and you see just those, those four English words, the words of Amos or the words of God, it might not do much for you. This is uh, my greatest concern as we begin this book. It's the greatest concern of my heart as I begin this book with you is I fear that I have 
and that means you have too, I'm sure, become a little too accustomed to what we just read at the beginning of verse one. The fact that the God of the universe has spoken to us has some way, as crazy as it sounds, lost its luster. We've become so familiar with the idea that God has spoken to us that it just doesn't seem very important to us anymore. We, we don't have the same kind of awe and wow factor when we read those words, the words of Amos. When we see in just a few minutes the, the way that those words came to him and how they come to us and how the rest of the scriptures speak to us. We have become far too accustomed to much in our world. It's, it's sort of our way as, as, as fallen creatures. You and I have become far too accustomed to the space program in our country. I've been reading a little bit more recently uh, about our universe, or at least what little bit of our universe that we know. I've not been through much of my life very interested in NASA, but uh, my interest is growing as I'm thinking more about our world and as we're heading into this book of, of Amos. And it seems clear to me that the, the marvel, as I read and I, I watch videos on YouTube, the marvel that is our space program has worn off on us. If I was a little bolder as a preacher, I might ask you to stand up and jump right where you are as high as you possibly can. Most of us would be pretty embarrassed because you probably can only jump just a few inches off the ground. This is the way that it has always been with the exception of a few great gifted athletes. You should try it maybe later today. I'm serious. Go home and jump in your kitchen. How far? How high? Can you actually jump just about that far? But on July 20th, 1969, NASA shot three people, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins on the Apollo 11 all the way to the moon. Now that's a far, far higher than that, those few inches that we can jump. And, and when that happened, it captivated the attention of of in particular our country, of course, because of the, the accomplishment of, of going into outer space in that way and actually landing on the moon. It caught the attention of the, the whole world. Even as I grew up as a, as a young kid 15 years later watching MTV during the summers, that moonwalk footage was always on the buffer between the music videos they used it as a, a branding opportunity. 15 years later, it was still an amazing sight to think that we could get not only a few inches off the ground, but all the way there. And today, you can go look at the schedule, even just for the Kennedy Space Center. NASA is shooting rockets into outer space frequently, regularly. But if you're like me, you probably haven't thought about that in years you probably haven't noticed that. And if you did read it as a little blurb in the news, it was big deal. We went into outer space. We shot people to the moon. Same thing has happened with the fact that God has spoken to us. You and I have become so familiar with the idea that the God of the universe would speak to us, it's like watching a rocket go into outer space. It's just not that big of a deal. Of course, of course we do that. Has the marvel that God has spoken to you in his book been lost on you? Yes, it has. And it has been lost on me too. Well, let's answer an important question as we work into this book and we consider just these first words that are so important to understand the book of Amos. Why? Why has the marvel been lost? The, the luster is gone. The awe has slipped away from us with the idea that God has spoken to you. Well, it's for two reasons, I think. One, you and I have lost the sense of who we are and we have lost the sense of who God is. Who is God? 
If we put it very succinctly, he is the creator of the universe. Big C, creator of the universe. Not only is he the creator of the universe, he is the ordainer, big O, of all things. Not just some of the things. He's the ordainer of all things in all places among all people. Not only is he the ordainer of all things, he is the savior of the world. He is the judge, big J, of mankind. He is the righteous king of all the earth, high and exalted. There's no one, no one like him. We've lost the sense of who God is. And therefore, we have lost the wow, the awe, the marvel that that God, that God has spoken to us. But we've also lost the sense of who we are, haven't we? What are you? If someone asked you on the street, who or what are you, what would you say? I hope that you would say these two important things. I am a creature, and with that, I am a fallen creature. And yet, of course, in the gospel, by, in Christ, I am a redeemed creature. But those are the two big things that, that we tend to lose sense of in who we are, that we are creatures. I don't know, maybe it's in part because of the space program and things like that. We've gotten, how do they say in the South, too big for our britches. We think a little too highly of ourselves, right? We even have fashioned an entire uh, philosophy of self-help that is, that is all about esteeming ourselves. We've lost sight of the fact that we are creatures, that we are small. Sometimes we lose sight of the fact that we are fallen. Those two truths about ourselves combined with all of those truths about God give us the answer why his speaking to us just doesn't seem that big of a deal. But that's not the way that Scripture tells us to think about God speaking to us. That's not what he does or puts on display in the lives and the hearts and the words of those that he chooses to use throughout the Bible. For instance, just this one passage, listen to this. You heard it briefly earlier, Psalm 8 we hear that this marvel of God speaking to people like us who are creatures and fallen creatures at that was not lost on David, at least not at this time. Listen to what he says in Psalm 8, 1 through 5. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, that's outer space, stars and planets, sun, moon, clouds, weather, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. Listen to this. What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty, but don't miss it because this is the key in verse four. This is the, the luster that's been lost. What is man that you take thought of him? When David looks at the world, when he looks at God, when he sees the heavens, the stars, the expanse of his creation, that God is the ordainer of all of that. He is high and exalted, righteous, full of glory. He looks down at earth and he sees himself and he says, what is man that you would take thought of him? You see, he's getting at that, that sense of creatureliness. He's getting at that sense of fallenness. He's getting at the sense of smallness. And he's marveling that that giant God would even give a thought 
one thought of these tiny fallen creatures. It doesn't make any sense. It's something to marvel about. Do you know if I could try, and I, I, can't, I can't completely put it into perspective, but as I try to put it in perspective for myself, I, I tend to put it this way. Did you know that you and I, we are one of 8 billion people on a relatively small planet. That planet is in a solar system, which was, if we ask the, the smart folks at NASA about what's out there, they're the ones who have been looking, trying desperately for years to see that that solar system in which exists our little planet on which you are one of 8 billion people is one of 3,200 solar systems in the Milky Way galaxy. And not only that, that the Milky Way galaxy, the smart guys at NASA think, is one of two trillion galaxies in the universe. Of course, we have no way of really knowing because we just can't see very far. In fact, in 1977, that was the year that I was born, just a, a few months after my birth, NASA shot the Voyager 1 space probe off our planet, sending it out into outer space at 35,000 miles an hour. And somehow, by a marvel of human ingenuity, the batteries on the Voyager 1 are still running. They're dwindling down. Uh, NASA is starting to turn off certain features to protect the storage and to, and, and to protect the battery and make it last just as long as it can, sending information back. Even on Voyager 1, uh, there are two gold records that has, have audio and video encrypted onto them in case something out there found it and could figure out how to read it. Voyager 1 is going to keep moving at 35,000 miles an hour every day, flying, flying, flying. And by what we currently conceive as our known universe, it will take Voyager 1 30,000 years to reach the end of just what we think we have seen. Do you know what that means? It means that you are very small. Not only that, but in this world, this small creature that is you, that is me, first attracted the attention of the God of the whole universe with our sin. The first kind of, kind of thought, if we can think about it in terms of the plan of redemption, is judgment. And you put all of that together, your smallness, your cosmic treason against the God of the universe, and you will say what David said, what is man that you would give him even a thought? But he has. That's the marvel of the words the words of Amos, the words of God, that God has not only taken thought of us, but he has spoken to us. Thus says the Lord. On your way into church today, did you give even one thought to the ants that you squashed just coming down this brief walkway? No, you did not. What is an ant that you would give thought to it? It is nothing. What are you that God would give even a thought about you? It is certainly nothing about us. It is something about him. And this is, this is what we marvel at. 
I think that this marvel and our happiness in it is the reason that the Bible exists and speaks to us today. Over and over, through the prophets, throughout every book of the Bible, God calls us back to wonder at this. Thus says the Lord. My friends, that's you. We together desperately need to wake up to the marvel that God has not only had a thought about us, not only has he noticed us, not only has he not killed us, but that he has even saved us and that he has spoken, spoken to us. If you want to respond rightly to this first part of the first verse, you need to do just this. You need to get your marvel back. You need to reconsider how it is that you have, like me, given so little thought on a daily basis to the fact that God has spoken to you such that you, like me, could go minutes, hours, days, sometimes weeks without ever opening his words to you. How can it be? You are so, so small. And yet he has spoken to you. God spoke to us through Amos, as we're seeing here. And let's look at how. How has he spoken to us through Amos? Well, here's the second truth that we see in just introducing this book. Not only is Amos a prophet, Amos records visions. And in particular, he records visions about Israel. God gave Amos visions about his chosen people. Notice what it says next as we move on to the next phrases in verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel. Envisioned in visions. That may be what your translation says. It's, a, it's just a, a few words there. It's actually in the original, it's just one word. It's emphasizing this fact that something special has happened. That God has granted Amos visions. Little old Amos shepherding the livestock, picking the figs out in this podunk town called Tekoa, the God of the universe has caused Amos to envision visions. Now, what's that word in the original mean? It means what the translation is getting at, to perceive, sort of like you would perceive with your eyes, but to perceive with a kind of supernatural inner vision, to behold with the eyes of your heart. What happened? Have you ever thought about that? What happened? How does that happen? How does a prophet like Amos receive a vision? How does, how does that work? What, what, does he, what does he get? We really, we really don't know. I think it's one of those secrets, Deuteronomy 29, 29, that God is keeping from us. He's keeping some of the inner workings of his plans a secret. I think this is one of them. But nevertheless, he's, he's given us a glimpse into what happened. Something special, something unique, something incredibly noteworthy has happened. Amos has received a message to proclaim that was first proclaimed just to him in a supernatural way, through means of something called a vision. So this is what happens, the best that we can figure. God caused Amos to perceive as a prophet the future for purpose 
of foretelling it to God's people. That's why it says that he envisioned visions concerning Israel, a message that he would deliver. And that's what a prophet does. We, we know that Amos was a prophet, and this is what prophets do. Prophets tell what God says. The kind of prophet that Amos is, is the prophet that tells the future, tells something new, something that is coming, something that has been established, something that will be revealed. But then there are other kinds of prophets, your pastors in particular, on a Sunday morning, we're doing something similar, but we're telling you what he's already said. We're telling you, we're, we're declaring to you what he has already written, what he has already revealed in his word. These visions, again, are about Israel. They're about, when you think of Israel, they are, they are God's elect people before Christ. And he writes here that, that it's happening in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. This is the king of the, of the southern kingdom in the nation of Israel, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel in the northern kingdom. Now, it's interesting that Amos refers to them throughout as the covenant people of God because what had happened was the people had split off from the southern kingdom when Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, became king. They had amassed all kinds of wealth and, and treasure that had privileged their lives, and they were concerned that there were some, some tax issues, financial issues going on that were going to put in danger their financial security. And so as a result of that, they were led astray to, to break off from the kingdom and to go into a northern kingdom. Now, Amos comes along about 200 years later with a message proclaimed to them by God about their, about their rebellion. But even then, you'll notice throughout as we continue that that recent rebellion through that split did not keep them from being God's covenant people. And that's why he is so serious. He's so intent on bringing this message to them. But again, this is something to marvel about. That God would perform such a special act in these times to his prophets to give divine visions about his redemptive plan, which I believe have ceased, at least in content, not in method. We're continuing to proclaim his redemptive plan, but here to see the way that he's doing it, not by opening a book and, and preaching the word of God out, but by delivering a message to him supernaturally in visions that would then be proclaimed out, something that, that we just do not see happening now. It is something to marvel at. Both of them are something to marvel at. Not, not the preaching. I don't think anybody here marvels at my preaching. There are others that I think we can marvel over. But you should marvel over the fact that the words of God have not only been delivered to you, but are being regularly proclaimed, that they hear in supernatural ways were, were originally declared by visions. And this is, in a way, what he continues to do for you as one of his people. He continues to illuminate your mind. He continues to deliver to you the truth by his Holy Spirit, who is leading us together as his chosen people into all truth. Man, that is marvelous. That is incredible. If you hear that and you, like me, see some darkness in your heart where you've, you still kind of don't get it, it's not that big of a deal then this would be a good time. This would be a good time to pray. Oh God, please, please shine your light into my heart that I would marvel at the fact that you would do things like this in this fallen, tiny little world. That you would give me your truth. That you would guide me into all truth. Oh God, thank you. Let's marvel about this. The way that he has spoken the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 marvels about this like David did in Psalm 8. He says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways was only leading up to the fact that in these last days, which I believe are also now, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he made the world. 
this is something to marvel at. That God delivered visions to someone like Amos, and here we are today, reading them and having them delivered to us. Now, the most important thing for you to see if you're getting lost in the shuffle is this. It's most important to see the method of God's unyielding intention because it will grow, it will grow your marveling. How does he go about this? We don't exactly know, but we do know this. He does it with an incredible, sovereign, godly hand to deliver a vision. In 1962, there was a dystopian novel by Anthony Burgess that became a movie called Clockwork Orange, and there's an incredibly disturbing scene there. It's a time where the, the government has kind of taken over, and there's, there's some people who have done wrong, and the government wants to try to rehabilitate them, and so they put them into this kind of uh, therapy, I guess, where they, in a lab, have, have opened the character, his name is Alex, his eyes, and they've opened them with with metal openers and kept them open. The idea that they would show him these images in movies and, and they, would, they would get all of these images flooding into him that that, would, that that would change him. You know, it's so hard to find some kind of picture to help us understand what is it that God does when a prophet receives a vision in a strange way. That's what he does. He doesn't come to the prophet and say, Amos, put down the sheep, put down the figs. I have good news. I'd like to give you a vision. Would you like to have it? He doesn't. What if he did? Amos would say, well, I don't know. What is the vision about? That's the thing. The vision is about some really, really bad news about judgment on the people of God because they have rebelled against me. No, thank you. That's not the kind of vision I'm interested in receiving or distributing for you. Maybe there would be some, God does not do that. What does God do? He supernaturally forces open the eyes of Amos' heart and floods him with images and words and truth and future such that he becomes captivated by it. It comes to control him. He enlists him into his declaratory army, and he becomes a prophet. That is how God delivers his vision. That is a marvelous, marvelous idea that God would be so intent on delivering his word to you that he would work that way in the hearts and the minds and the mouths of his prophets. Well, as we continue on, this is what we're going to be doing is unpacking with Amos what are these visions that have flooded into his heart and soul. And now they have been recorded for us forever in his book. As we come to the end of this second brief point of introduction, it's another simple application, but it's a challenge to us. If you can catch that marvel for the way that God has spoken, then do everything you possibly can to tune your ears to it. Spend as much time as you possibly can, spend as much energy as you possibly can reading and eating and drinking these words. Try to get your heart, your hands, your mind, your very soul around these visions as they're declared to us in the book of Amos. And then let's keep, let's keep attuned. Now, the last point that we need to see is as an introduction to this book is, is something, again, that doesn't sit well with modern ears, but yet our Christian ears that have been refashioned by God, we know the importance of what we're, we're going to see mostly in the book of Amos. 
And that is a lot of bad news. News of God's righteous judgment. News of his seriousness about sin. Even in the lives of his covenant people, Israel. And I want you to remember that next as we work our way through this book. Prepare yourself. Pray knowing that you have still modern ears and you should ask God, God, please help me. Help me to embrace what I don't naturally embrace to appreciate the bad news that you've delivered here in this book, that it may work in us a humility and a joy and an excitement and happiness about the gospel and what God has done for us. We see this just briefly last. We're going to give kind of a glimpse, a little image, a little ominous few words that will carry forward in the book. And they are simply this, that these visions came to Amos two years before, before the earthquake. The visions of Amos, the words of Amos, brought a revelation of, of very bad news from God about coming judgment. And here it says at the end of verse 1 that this was two years before the earthquake. Now, obviously, by the way this is written, there's no explanation needed to the people who would hear this or read this to know what was, what was going on. What is this earthquake business about? They would know. They would remember and it provides a kind of ominous tone for the words of judgment which will follow, looking back on those days. But here as we prepare to finish our time this morning, I want to just give you a brief overview of kind of three messages which I'm drawing from J.A. Modier, a theologian who's been so helpful as to help us understand this, these three messages and, and how they may apply to us today. If you're taking notes, this is, this is a serious part where, where you can grab something very meaty and applicable to our lives that will carry us through so that, we can, so that we can get this truth down, even though it's not always natural to us. Here's the first message that we'll hear from Amos, and it is this. It is that privilege brings peril. The people of God to whom he is uh, prophesying, they had experienced wonderful privilege at God. He had blessed them and they had, they had grown in incredible riches, which became the reason that they ended up splitting from the southern kingdom of Israel. And so God directly spoke to them and he had showed them that he was on their side and yet and yet they, under, they misunderstood the implications of that. The implications of all of his blessing and all of his favor toward them by grace alone through the coming Messiah. They thought it meant security without scrutiny. And so Amos' message is in part this. The closer that you are to God the greater the requirement of accountability, the greater the potential for discipline, even in the case here in Amos, of judgment. That's why he writes this. I'm going to give you just a few snippets that we'll see again as we move forward in Amos. In Amos 3, it says this, Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth, Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. There's something that doesn't seem right about that, does it? It's kind of counterintuitive. It's because maybe you and I have thought the same thing, that the closer we are to God, the less concern we need to have about our lives. But actually, it's the opposite. And that's what they are learning the hard way here, is that their privilege actually brought great peril. It great brought the need for great scrutiny as it does in our lives too. The closer that we get to Christ, the more that we know the good news, the more accountable we become to his revealed truth and his word, the more important it becomes that we take him seriously. That was first. Second, we're going to hear this message, that past history cannot take the place of present commitment to God. Like a, like a loaf of bread, if it's left out, all of the rich flavors and texture will be lost as it hardens and becomes stale. It's no longer good. At one time in the past, it was great, but it's not so great now. And it is no substitute for the present. 
Therefore, we, we need up-to-date uh, daily bread, both physically and spiritually. In this case, the bread is the present commitment to God today. You see, what we'll see in this book is that they had failed to keep fresh their commitment to God. So they're warned in chapter 5, verse 6, seek the Lord that you may live or he will break forth like a fire, O house of Joseph, and it will consume with none to quench it for Bethel. We're going to see later that there were some serious problems as they split with some false, false worship that was going on at Bethel. And even though they had this past commitment, it was no substitute for their present rebellion. Also, we see that their past commitment had given to them moral commitments, and those moral commitments were quickly lost in this, this season of their lives. That's why they're warned in, in 14 and 15 of chapter 5, seek good and not evil. You see, what they had started to do was to seek evil, that you may live, and thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said, hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Not only that, but even the, 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 the privilege of all of God's investment in them spiritually and his incredible favor toward them by grace should have and had in the past, but not in their present, worked out personal and social ethics in the world. The way that they had come to interact with their world as would-be ambassadors of God had been lost. Therefore, in verse 24 of chapter 5, we read this and we'll read it again, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. They had lost sight of their place in the world as God's people. And then the third message that we're going to see here is that religious, shallow religious profession and pseudo-righteous rituals that lack the heart are dangerous. They're offensive to God. If they're not accompanied by the clear evidences of godliness in the world, it means living out, it means doing the law of God in the power of his grace, not merely pretending as these folks were at religious observances. And he warns them of this as well. Simply put, you may think of it this way, the closer to the fire you are, the more careful you will become. We want to be so close to the fire of our God, but it will mean that our seriousness, our commitment to him will grow. It will warm. It will burst into flame. And if it doesn't, we can be sure that he, as our gracious father in the gospel, he will, he will correct us. And it will be good for us, but God forbid. Let's draw close to the fire who is our God and be careful. Careful with our seriousness, careful with our happiness. This brings us back really to where we started in the, the introduction to this sermon. As I challenge you to carefully consider the great responsibility which comes with closeness to God care and concern for the way that you handle his word in your life, not just in your hand. We receive in Christ increased joy and our increased joy in God ought to lead us to increased commitment to him, to his words, to his warnings, of course, to his promises. And so as we come to a close this morning and look forward to next Sunday as we continue to march forward in this incredible book, of Amos, I want to challenge you this in this way. I want to challenge you perhaps today or early this week and each week as we work our way through the book to revisit before God personally in your life, how exactly are you going to be seriously focused and seriously happy in Christ? over the next six days. That's a fantastic practice for us to take on as a habit. Will you do that? Hope that you will. 
I will with you. That we might on Sunday evening or Monday morning carve out a little time to prayerfully think carefully about that. How am I going to be seriously committed and seriously happy in Christ over the next six days? And then go to work with God's help. This is where the book of Amos is leading us. It's leading us into that kind of mindset as we consider the important words, the visions that were given to him and then to his people. Our Father in heaven, oh God, we give you thanks for your goodness to us, for your grace. We give you thanks for the gospel and for Jesus Christ who lived, died, and rose again for us. And God, we confess to you and we ask your forgiveness today that we have lost the marvel of your words spoken to us, the the very fact that you would be mindful of us. How can it be? We don't know, but it is, and we pray that you would reignite our awe of the fact that you have spoken to us, and as a result of that awe, that we would take your words seriously. Oh God, help us to pursue you with every fiber of our being and our soul. Help us to take seriously the grip that your hand has upon us in Christ, and help us to be incredibly careful about the way we love you, the way that we walk with you, because we want to magnify your glory. We want to maximize our joy and satisfaction and happiness and gladness in you, and we pray for your help this morning. Oh God, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you by faith in Christ, I pray that you would convict them, that you would convert them, that this would be the the day of their salvation, that they would share that with one of us so that we can walk with them, pray for them, help them, and we could all grow together, even as over the coming weeks we spend important time together in your word, in this book. God, give fruit to our work, to our labors, to our attention. We'll glorify you in Christ's name. Amen. 